Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Dr. Tanya Marie Lerman, Dr. Tanya Marie Lerman, uh, who's a professor of psychological anthropology at Stanford University, a very accomplished scholar, she retells an old joke, and maybe some of you have heard it before. It's up here on the screen. When you talk to God, we call it prayer, but when God talks to you, we call it schizophrenia. <laughs> Anybody ever heard that one? When you talk to God, we call it prayer. But when God talks to you, we call it schizophrenia. However, in her special report with CNN, Dr. Lerman offers a surprisingly scientific analysis of people of faith who claim to have heard from God, who claim that God actually spoke to them. And so she concludes that special report with these words, and these words are also up here on the screen. She says, science cannot tell us whether God generated the voice that Abraham or Augustine heard, but it can tell us, science can tell us, that many of these events are normal, part of the fabric of human perception. So there we have it. Mental illness is certainly a reality that we don't want to overlook, discount, make fun of, but at the same time, hearing from God does not have to be a sign of mental illness. There are many genuine, authentic people who, over the course of human history, claim to have heard from God. And we're going to talk about one of those persons this morning. So we are now in part three of our six-part message series that we're calling Behind the Veil. Uh, Behind the Veil. In this six-part series, uh, we're looking at, we're exploring uh, the stories of various women in the Old Testament. As we've said before, these women lived in a culture that was not favorable to them, a culture that often overlooked them. But by God's grace and the Spirit's power, these women managed to do remarkable, amazing, incredible things for God. And so we're looking at their stories. Uh, we're allowing their stories to teach us as 21st century Christians about what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a person of God. And as I mentioned, the person that we're going to talk about today, she is somebody who heard directly from God. God spoke to her. In fact, some scholars have called her the Joan of Arc of the Old Testament. Remember Joan of Arc? Some people have called her the Joan of Arc of the Old Testament, and her name is Deborah. Deborah. Now, as a bit of background, Deborah lived well over 3,000 years ago during the violent, chaotic, tumultuous, and politically charged period of Israel's history known as the Judges, when there was no king in Israel. And so remember, after Moses passed away, Moses led the people of God into the land. Actually, Moses led the people of God out of Egypt. And then when Moses passed away, Joshua, his successor, led the people of God into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God promised the Israelites, going all the way back to Abraham, the patriarch. So Moses dies, Joshua dies. Well, after Joshua died, there was a vacuum of leadership in Israel. 
You ever been in an organization or a company when there was a vacuum of leadership? Often things get kind of chaotic and crazy. So there was a vacuum of leadership in Israel. It wasn't entirely clear who was in charge. Now, of course, ultimately, God was in charge. But the problem was the people rarely listened to God. They weren't attentive to God. And that's where the judges came in. Uh, what would happen during this period, and we have this up here in the screen, uh, the period of the judges, what would happen during this period is that the people of God would follow God for a short period of time, and then they would forget about God, they would do evil, they would venture into idolatry. In other words, they would worship false gods, uh, gods other than the God of Israel. So God would get upset, and God would hand them over to a nearby nation that would oppress them, conquer them, the Israelites, predictably, would finally call out to God. They would suddenly remember God, and they would say, God, please, we're dying over here. Save us, rescue us, deliver us. Well, when God works in the world, God typically works through people like you and me. And so instead of intervening directly, God would raise up a judge or a military leader. And that judge would lead the people of God into battle against their enemies. Israel would be victorious, and then there would be a reign of peace under the judge's leadership. The judge would then pass away. And Israel would repeat this cycle all over again. In fact, I encourage you, maybe sometime this week, look at the book of Judges. You'll see this cycle repeated over and over and over again. Now, altogether, there are 12 judges mentioned in the book of Judges. Deborah is one of them. And what sets Deborah apart from all the others is she's a female judge, the only female judge mentioned in the book of Judges. In a moment of crisis and desperation, Deborah steps up to the plate, and she offers God-inspired leadership to God's people. And so we're going to talk about her story this morning. So that leads us to the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. You start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And this is going to be from Judges chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 14. Now, of course, the story of Deborah is much longer. We're not going to read the entire story, but we will read the first 14 verses. It says, after Ehud's death, and as an aside, Ehud was the judge prior to Deborah. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. As we mentioned, this is the cycle. The Israelites forget about God. They do evil. God hands them over to a nearby nation that oppresses them. It says the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Haguyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinom, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord the God of Israel commands you. So Deborah is giving this message to Barak. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun on Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. 
There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. We're going to return to that line toward the end of the sermon. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. At Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harosheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day. The Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. The period of the judges was not a high point in Israel's history. You remember how Charles Dickens began his book, A Tale of Two Cities? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, let's be clear. When it came to the period of the judges, it was the worst of times. And few times were more terrible than when Jobin was king of Hazor and Sisera was his general. These guys were bad. They were mean. They were cruel. They were vindictive. And they were not to be messed with. In fact, the text that we just read tells us that Sisera had an army made up of how many iron chariots? 900 iron chariots. Now, that kind of gets lost on our modern ears, but that's basically the text way of saying that this guy had untold military strength and power. It was unmatched. And did you catch for how long Sisera had been oppressing the Israelites? 20 years. So just imagine, you're an Israelite living back then under that kind of constant threat and oppression for two decades. Wondering if there's ever going to be any kind of relief. If you and your children are ever going to live in safety and peace. The Israelites could only take it for so long. So one day, they cry out to God. God, please save us. Deliver us. Rescue us. That's where Deborah comes in. Let's read again from verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Deborah the wife of Lapidoth was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time, at the time that Sisera was oppressing the Israelites. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Now, we don't know very much about Deborah. This is her biography. And as best I can tell, this biography only mentions three things. Number one, she's the wife of Lapidoth. Number two, she's a prophet. In other words, she's a spokesperson for God. She speaks on behalf of God. She carries out the voice of God to the people. Remember, women were prophets in the Old Testament, just like men were. Remember uh, Miriam, the, the person we talked about two weeks ago? She also is identified in the book of Exodus as a prophet. So women were prophets in addition to men in the Old Testament. So she's the wife of Lapidoth. 
She's a prophet. And then finally, number three, the Israelites would come to her for matters of judgment. And she had authority to grant rulings on such matters. So one day, after 20 years of oppression, and of course, as I was working on this sermon, I asked myself, why did it take the Israelites 20 years? Why did it take them 20 years to ask God for help? Is that how stubborn they were? Is that how defiant they were, rebellious they were? But one day, after 20 years of this oppression, the Israelites ask God for help, and so God appears to Deborah, this wife slash prophet slash judge, and God tells Deborah to deliver a message to Barak, who is one of the military commanders. This is the message that Deborah delivers to Barak. Verse 6, she said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun on Mount Tabor. Deborah doesn't miss a beat. She has such confidence. She is so deeply rooted in God that she doesn't hesitate to give marching orders to a military leader. Despite all the social barriers between herself and, and Barak, she doesn't hesitate to give marching orders to a military leader. And clearly Barak does not take offense at her brisk orders. This is his response to Deborah, verse 8. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. But only if you go with me. Now wait a minute. We're women, a part of the military in ancient Israel thousands of years ago. No. Back then, the expectation was they would stay at home while the men went off to war. But it's almost as if in this moment, the scales are removed from Barak's eyes, and he no longer sees Deborah as his culture has conditioned him to see her, as the world has conditioned him to see her. That is, he no longer sees Deborah as a woman who's beneath him who's regarded as less than him. Instead, he sees her as an equal, a partner, that the two of them share a common humanity. And so it's interesting how moments of crisis and desperation can often purify our thinking. Moments of crisis and desperation can often purify our thinking. When I was in my second year of seminary, at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. I had the opportunity to intern at a church for a year. It was a rural church located about an hour away from Duke. And the supervising pastor with whom I served, his name was Vernon Tyson. We have a picture of Vernon Tyson up here on the screen. Vernon was a retired minister at that point, but he came out of retirement to serve this church part-time. His brother was actually the part-time minister there. But then, unfortunately, his brother died of cancer. And so Vernon came out of retirement to finish out his brother's term. And so, therefore, he was my supervising pastor, teaching me what it means to be a minister. Let me share a story from Vernon's ministry. Vernon was a pastor in North Carolina in the 1950s, in the 1960s, and the 1970s, when racial integration was the most contested issue in the South. 
Now, Vernon knew, as a Christian, as a minister, from his understanding of Scripture, that integration wasn't simply a political issue. Many people made it into a political issue. It wasn't a political issue. It wasn't a social issue. It was a gospel issue. It was a kingdom issue. And therefore, he did not hesitate to take a bold stand, no matter how much it cost him. So, one time, and his son Tim, who's a professor at Duke, he's a historian, he actually talks about this in a book that he wrote, called Blood Done Sign My Name. But one time in 1964, four years before Dr. King was assassinated, Vernon was serving Jonesboro Methodist Church in Sanford, North Carolina. And he decided that he was going to have Reverend Dr. Samuel Proctor come and preach at the church. Anybody ever heard the name Reverend Dr. Samuel Proctor? He was a, a leader in the civil rights movement. Uh, he was also an ordained minister. He worked closely with Dr. King. And he was the president at that time of A&T, which is the historically black college in North Carolina. So Vernon had gone to this event. He had heard Dr. Proctor preach. Dr. Proctor was a very articulate, bold preacher. He loved his message, so he came up to him and said, Dr. Proctor, would you come preach at my church? And Dr. Proctor said, yes. Well, when word got out that Vernon had invited a black minister to come and preach, People were enraged. They were ticked off. To say that they were upset would be a gross understatement. Vernon even received death threats on the telephone. Well, things got to be so bad and so tense that this Saturday night, before Dr. Proctor was scheduled to preach, the church's administrative council called an emergency meeting. They didn't ask Vernon for his input. They just went ahead and called this meeting, and of course, he was expected to be there. So he shows up to this meeting, dozens of people there, they're yelling, they're screaming, it's very tense. And one man spoke up, and he said, Vernon, you can end this all right now with one phone call. You call up Dr. Proctor and tell him he has no business preaching here tomorrow. Another man spoke up and he said, listen, Vernon, I know your heart's in the right place. I know what you're trying to do. And I, I get that our relationship with the black community isn't great, but come on. Think about our church. This is going to tear us apart. It's not worth it. Well, just then, this older woman stood up to speak. Her name was Miss Amy Womble. She was a first grade teacher. She had taught most of the people there in that room at that meeting. But nobody knew how she felt about integration. And so she spoke up and said, you know, I've been sitting here, sort of listening, and I hear one of us say that this is going to tear apart our church. She looked directly at the man who said that without calling him out by name. Well, I don't know this minister who's coming here to preach. I, I know he's the president of a college, but I don't know him personally. However, I know our minister, Pastor Vernon, and I know he doesn't want to tear apart our church, and I doubt that this man wants to tear apart our church. If any tearing's going to happen, it's going to come from us. It takes two to tear. Furthermore, she said, here's what else I know. There was a case up near Chapel Hill recently where a teenage boy was in the car, and like a lot of teenage boys, he was driving way too fast. He went around a curve, his car flipped over several times, and he was lying there in the ditch. People thought he was dead. They were waiting for the ambulance to come, not to take him to the hospital, but to the cemetery, the funeral home. There wasn't any sign of life. 
Well, just then, there was an airman from Pope Air Force Base. He came and he saw this commotion at the side of the road, and so he parked his car, he went into the embankment, he opened up that boy's mouth, he saw what the problem was. That boy's tongue was stuck in the back of his throat, it was blocking his airway, he could not breathe. So what he did is he took his finger, he pulled out his tongue, and then he gave that boy mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Within a few moments, that boy was up and walking. He was as alive as you and me. It was as if no accident had happened. That man who saved him was a hero. People regarded him as such. Here's what I haven't told you. That young man who crashed his car, that was a white man. That young man who saved him, that was a black man. I know you all don't want to hear that, but that's the truth. So I've got a question for all you fathers in this room, because most of the people there that night, they were men with children. I have a question for all you fathers. Which one of you fathers would have said to that rescuer, now don't go putting your finger down my white boy's throat. Don't go putting your lips on my white boy's mouth. Which one of you fathers would have said that? And she sat down. No one dared to speak a word. Before Miss Amy spoke, the board wanted to rescind the invitation for Dr. Proctor to preach. After Miss Amy spoke and shared her witness, the board voted 25 to 14 to have Dr. Proctor preach. Dr. Proctor came and preached that very next morning to a packed congregation standing room only. And by the way, it's my understanding that at Jonesboro Methodist Church in Sanford, North Carolina, I read this somewhere online, there's actually a Sunday school class named for Miss Amy called the Miss Amy Womble Sunday School class. Years later, Pastor Vernon had the privilege to officiate Miss Amy's funeral when she passed away. And during the funeral service, he shared that story. And after he shared that story, he said, I have never in all my life heard the voice of the Lord with such thunder, such power, such clarity, and such love. You see, Miss Amy reminded the men in that room who had been conditioned in the ways of racism and prejudice and discrimination that when it comes down to it, we are all people. Each and every one of us, we're all people. And it seems that in moments of crisis and desperation, like when we crash our car or we're going to war against an enemy who's trying to destroy us and annihilate us, it seems that in these moments of crisis and desperation that the things that we thought separate us and divide us, they no longer seem to matter. It doesn't matter to Barack that Deborah's a woman. Who cares that she's a woman? What difference does it make? All he knows is that Israel is in desperate need of good leadership, and Deborah is just the person. She is just the person who has been put in place by God to provide that leadership. But even so, Deborah does have to remind Barak that if she goes into battle with him, it's going to diminish his victory. You know why? Because as she says, it will mean that in seeking to rescue Israel, Barak will have sought the help of a woman. That's what it says in verse 9. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, 
but you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. Every time I read this line, it breaks my heart. It upsets me. To be clear, Deborah is not criticizing Barak. She's not beating up on Barak. Rather, as a prophet, remember, she's a prophet. She's somebody who tells like it is. As a prophet, she is naming the reality of what's going to happen because of the prevailing attitudes that people held thousands of years ago about women and what women were capable of. And what's also really upsetting is that these same attitudes show up even out today, even in the church. I was reminded of that this week. As I was working on the sermon, I was, I was reading commentaries on this passage and seeing what different scholars and commentators said. And there were some commentators and scholars who said, you know what, Barak, that guy had issues. He was a weak leader. He had something the matter with him. He, he, he failed to provide the strength and the leadership that Israel needed. He had to lean on somebody else for support. To me, these commentators are missing the entire point of this story. We should not be criticizing Barak for what he wasn't able to do without Deborah. And this is up on the screen. We should not be criticizing Barak for what he wasn't able to do without Deborah. Instead, we should be recognizing and celebrating what Barak was able to do by God's grace because of Deborah. I'm going to say that once more. We should not be criticizing Barak for what he wasn't able to do without Deborah. Instead, we should be recognizing and celebrating what Barak was able to do because of Deborah, by God's grace. He was finally able to go into battle. This is verse 14, the very last verse that we read. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day. The Lord will give you victory over Cicero, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. What Deborah is doing in this moment is she's giving Barak the boost that he needs. She's reminding Barak that God is with him, that God has not left him, that God has not abandoned him, that God has not forsaken him, that God is marching ahead of him, that God is sovereign, God is in charge, God is in control, God is king, and therefore Barak doesn't have to be afraid. And so that brings us this morning to the takeaway virtue that we glean from Deborah. Throughout the sermon series, we've been noting the takeaway virtues that we glean from each one of these figures. The takeaway virtue that we gleaned from Miriam two weeks ago was being shrewd, remember that? And using shrewd and clever thinking for the kingdom of God. The takeaway virtue that we gleaned from Rahab last week was expressing faith through action. Well, the takeaway virtue that we gleaned from Deborah is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The takeaway virtue is this, empowering others. Empowering others, helping others to be all that God intends for them to be. Helping others to become all that God wants for them to become. Helping others to step into to embrace the reality, the preferred future that God has for them. Have you ever had somebody do this for you? I have. I was already a pastor when I met Amanda and we got married. And I can remember so well, just after we got married, I was going through a pretty discouraging season of ministry. In fact, there were some days where I wondered if I was really cut out for this work. I had made some decisions at the church I was serving at that time, and 
even though I felt in my gut that they were the right decision, the necessary decisions, the decisions that were needed for the health of the church, there was still pushback. People got mad. They got upset. Some people left the church. Some people made some comments that I took way too personally. And that really was weighing me down. And so I remember one day I was in the kitchen with Amanda, and I know you all find this hard to believe, but I was feeling kind of irritable. <laughs> I wasn't in the best of moods. I was not a pleasant person to be around. I was short, grumpy. And Amanda said, Amanda said, what's going on? You're not being yourself. Something's bothering you. Come on, I'm your wife. Open up. Talk with me. And I just broke down and started crying. And I shared all my insecurities and my fears and my anxieties. And then toward the end of that conversation, I said, you know, it would be so much easier for me to trust God. Trust that God's hand is upon this whole mess that we're in right now. If I could just know right now that everything's going to be okay, that everything's going to be fine, and Amanda looked at me and said, okay, I hear what you're saying, that's understandable, but I guess my question is this, where does faith come in? Where does faith come in? Wait a minute, aren't I a pastor? Haven't I been to seminary? Don't I preach about this stuff? Shouldn't I know a thing or two about faith? But Amanda was reminding me in that moment to put my faith in God, that God was so much bigger and so much greater than the box I was trying to put God in. She became for me in that moment what Deborah was for Barack. We need people like that, don't we? We need people who push us when we need to be pushed, who challenge us when we need to be challenged, who give us that kick in the pants that we need, who remind us, who tell us that even in situations that are dreary and bleak and seemingly hopeless, that God is in control, that God is marching on ahead, and that we don't have to be afraid. Thanks be to God for Deborah. And thanks be to God for the modern-day 21st century Deborahs whom God continues to use each and every day to empower and strengthen us. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the way that you used Deborah to empower Barak and for the Deborahs that you continue to use each and every day to empower us. And God, we pray that we would be a Deborah to somebody else who is struggling, who is hurting, who needs to put their faith and their hope in you. God, you are so good in ways that exceed our understanding. And we praise and thank you for that. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.